I am so excited to be partnering up with Gorillas again this season. The original sexy grocery delivery app is revolutionizing online shopping. Fresh food delivered to your door in minutes, catering to all your food needs. Operating in nine countries around the world, Gorillas supports small businesses as well as local producers to bring your favorite brands to your door. Run out of wine during the dinner party? Gorillas can sort that. Run out of eggs for your Sunday morning pancakes? Gorillas can also sort that. Don't believe me when I say how great they are? Then download their app and get £10 off your first order when you spend £20. Use the code SEXY10 at checkout and thank me later. Hello and welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Harley-Young. This podcast is all about the love of food and how it plays a part in our lives. I sit down with well-known personalities, food experts, chefs, and people who just love their food to find out all about their life, career, and their favorite tastes along the way. Today, I'm joined by Adjua Ando, the British film, television, and theater actress. She has successfully bridged the gap between all three mediums of performance, from Invictus to Doctor Who to Richard III. In recent times, she is most well known for her portrayal of Lady Danbury in the hugely successful Netflix show Bridgerton, which has taken the world by storm. Hmm. I'm so excited to be sitting down with this brilliant, successful lady and find out all about her life in food. Adwa, welcome to Crazy Sexy Food. What a lovely intro. Thank you, Hannah. Very glad to be here. How are you, first and foremost? Um, at the, the sun really shone this morning and I got a sniff of spring. So I'm delighted. I think February's the month where we're all a bit like, come on now, that's long mm-hmm. enough. I'd like a bud. There's some snowdrops, good. We're going in the right direction. And the sun came out and the dog did the whole of the park. So, oh, I love that. I know that feeling. And it sort of, it gives you sort of heart flutters. Yeah. Cause there's sort of, it's a feeling of hope. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, nature is just very, very gracious doing that stuff of going, do you know what? I'll be back next year. Hang on in there. We're going to come totally. round again. And uh, yeah, totally. I think we've all sort of lent into that quite a bit in the last little while. Yeah. So where are you recording from? I am on the sofa in the living room. Uh, the sunny, look, it's a sunny day. Oh, yeah. The windows are filled. Beautiful. Uh, the books are there and it's comfy. Lovely. And I mean, you've been very busy. We've been trying to organise this um, recording for a very long time with your team. So what have you been doing? You know, what, what have you been filming? What's going on? So I've been getting ready to prep um, for uh, Bridgerton 3 starts in 10 seconds. Um, that'll be most of the year. Um, I'm also the queen of audiobook land. So I'm relentless. I've, I've recorded bajillions of audiobooks. I've been doing audiobooks. I'm writing. I'm producing a couple of uh, shows, um, uh, a crime show and a historical show. Um, so we're in the writer's room doing that um i'm hopefully so i did richard the second that's what i've done but hopefully i'm directing richard the third in the new year so i'm prepping all that as well and yeah it's been fairly woman oh and i'm back to auntie and cleopatra on the radio so i'm going to be playing cleopatra oh how fabulous yeah so that'll be nice so it's all be tuning into that it's all going on it's all going on so obviously this is a food podcast and I Ooh. always ask my guests to kind of kick things off. What did you have for breakfast this morning? I am very dull and repetitive. So this morning I had Faye Greek yogurt, full fat. Yeah. Uh, and I have that every morning, pretty much. Either that you or just, scrambled eggs. Uh, and, do you and just coffee. have the yogurt on its own? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. And, uh, and full fat, uh, full fat yogurt, and then uh, coffee made with the, the, my little Italian percolator, and all my daily drugs. <laughs> Sounds I'm, a bit like my breakfast. <laughs> it's like it's not very appetizing. It's not very exciting. I like it, and I, it does I, the job, right? It does the job. It does the job. And yeah, it's totally. the day. So yeah, it's a bit. It's more fuel than glamour. 
Totally. Mm. So I want to take it back to your childhood a bit. You were born in Bristol in a very beautiful place called Clifton, which I know very well, by the way. Do you? Um, and then you grew up in Gloucestershire, I believe. I want to know what life was like growing up. I want to know who was cooking, what was on the table, was food important? Um, so, yes. my So my mother's family lived in Clifton. I was born in Clifton. We lived in a little place called Whitchurch which is on the outskirts of Bristol and then we moved to Leeds so we lived in Leeds till I was four and then we moved to the Cotswolds by which time I had a very strong Yorkshire accent this is the mid-60s it was tricky we were the only Africans in the village well actually my father was the only African my brother my mum's from Liverpool um so uh um food was what would I say about food? So we had a, we had a real mixture of, of cuisine because um, my dad uh, brought a lot of Ghanaian cuisine with him. So I grew up thinking things like we would chew the marrow out of the middle of bones. I thought, mm -hmm. every, I thought everybody did that. Um, it was just us. Uh, uh, um, dad would make corned beef hash was a favorite. So we were, my mum was a teacher. My dad was in exile. He did all sorts of random jobs and ended up working for British Aerospace as an accountant. Oh. So money was not super plentiful. And it was the 60s. So everything was sort of home cooked. You didn't buy food. You know, There was no delivery. People mm. didn't really go out. You, you cooked stuff and stuff lasted all week. So we had um, corned beef hash with a lot of nutmeg and pepper and spices and rice. That was a, a bit of a staple with dad. My mum's liver and bacon was second to none. Um, we did the uh, Sunday tea time homemade cake. Mum would bake on a Saturday morning. My brother and I would fight over who was going to get the bowl or who would get the spoon. And we'd, she'd have to be really judicious and alternate or else they'd be like, he had the bowl last week. Would go on. <laughs> so, um, she's a That's a very important conversation, Listen. actually. <laughs> So um, mum was a great baker. Um, she was also a super busy teacher. So I do remember the, um, the bleak years of uh, smash potato, fish fingers and uh, hot tin tomatoes. Wow. Okay. Not great. Um, but she could make a fantastic roast. Um, she, she learned how to cook chicken the Ghanaian way from when dad's sisters would come. Um, it was basically just meant more seasoning. Um, and, <laughs> Uh, 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 and, uh, I, you know, Instant Whip, Angel Delight, these were the new uh, flash fast foods. Yeah. Sunday tea time, it would be Kling Peaches and Ideal Milk, or it might be Fruit Cocktail in heavy syrup. Everything was heavy syrup. And salad sandwiches, my mother was very good, which was basically salad with salad cream in a sandwich. She would chop everything up really small. She had scissors. She would always chop the um, spring onions with scissors. Um, I love that. <laughs> so she, Actually, that's a brilliant idea. It is, because it just gets it all nice and... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So um, so she it's butterfly cakes, uh, flapjack. I learned to bake and cook. I had a children's cookbook. I was very good on the cheese straws. Um, and there were lots of things that would go around the village. There would be... Um, uh, there would be, okay, so-and-so's got the mother for ginger beer. All right, I'll get it off then. Do you want some? Yeah, all right. So then ginger beer would be would sweep the village like wildfire. Then another time it'd be, um, yeah, we're doing yogurt. Do you want any of the, I can't remember what it's called, the, the basic yogurty thing. And then you, every, Ed would be making yogurt. My dad always had, um, there was always homemade wine and beer stills in the airing cupboard, popping and exploding wow. randomly. And, um, and then we grew lots of vegetables in the garden. But everything was, so my best friend, her dad was the butcher, the Honeybourns down the road. And when we were bored, we would go and watch her older brother, Christopher, wringing chickens' necks and hanging them up. So I'd hang them up on a hook. We'd just sit on the wall watching them. Christopher would do that. Um, there was dairy farming and um, um, sheep farming. So, um, you know, I went out with pig farmers and dairy farmers. I could milk a cow by hand at a push still. And if you wanted your vegetables, you walked up to the farm uh, and to Robinson's farm and you knocked at the back door with your purple carrier, you know, fabric bag that mummy gave you on Saturday morning with the change. And you'd see Mrs. Robinson. What do you want, my dear? Um, 
can we, mum says, can we have five pounds of potatoes? Righto. She'd get the metal scales out and the dish and she'd weigh the potatoes. Then there'd be the onions and whatever brassicas were. So like you understood where food came from. God, I think that's probably one of the best answers I've ever had from this question. <laughs> you've sort of, you've just painted it so beautifully. I sort of felt like I was there with you. It was like, I, I tell you what as well, it's funny when you talk about things like um, the, the knowledge you had of food. I feel like the youth of today don't really, especially like on the, in the inner cities, don't really understand, you know, what it used to be like. Well, and what it is still like, it's just sort of pushed, it's pushed, I mean, obviously factory farming is the devil yeah. and I hate it. Um, uh, I think all sentient creatures should be having a life. And um, if food is super cheap, it's cost somebody or some creature something somewhere else down the line, whether it's, 100%. you know, trafficked people picking vegetables or veal calves never seeing the light of day or yeah. you know, whatever it is. So I just think, um, you know, and obviously I'm a fair trade uh, patron, so I'm all about food production and, and food workers, livelihoods and animal welfare and all of that stuff. Um, and, and I think that probably comes a bit from just where I grew up. I grew up around people working super hard to make good food for mm. us. And we all Absolutely. understood that you ate meat twice a week if you were lucky because it's costly and mm. it should be costly. And there are other ways of getting protein. And I just, I just think we need to, as you say, we need to reconnect with the means of production and what it means in terms of an animal's life and the, the hard worker farmers and crop growers and all of that and 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 the environment as well. You know, we've lost so many um, insects and um, indigenous animals in the last yeah. 50 years. Like we have lost like a ridiculous percentage, something like 60 percent because of the um, high intensive ways we've farmed and stripped the countryside and uh, I think um, I, I, I kind of don't blame farmers. I just think it's a whole, uh, in fact, I definitely don't blame farmers. It's a whole industrialized way of making food. And, yeah. I, I, and I think people are under enormous pressure just to break even as farmers. Um, so it's about pricing. Yeah, it's a whole it's a whole conversation then no, and, you know and it, but it is a conversation that I think needs to be had a hell of a lot more and you know even sort of like in my little day-to-day -day life I you know I eat meat I eat everything but I and it's not necessarily about the fact that I want to cut down but I would rather eat less in a week and spend more money on the pieces that I'm buying because yeah. you know when 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 a chicken is sort of five pounds Mm. Well, you're eating I'd like hormones. To know, I'd like to know what 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 it what happened for it to get to my table for five pounds. I know, and I just think that you know, so that I suppose the big conversation is we have we at the moment we're in a state where people are are making choices about whether they're going to heat their homes or eat. Food banks are rising exponentially now. You can't even go to a food bank without a referral anymore. You have to go to a food yeah. hub or a food club because that is how much pressure people are under to eat. And, you know, there, the, the disparity of wealth and poverty in this country has, in the last 10 years, has gone through the sky. So, you know, it, I'm very conscious of going, you know, uh, well, I buy, I, I, I advocate fair trade because they get a premium and yes, it just costs a little bit more. And you think, yeah, actually people are struggling to eat at all. Yeah. Premium, schmemium, you know, quality, schmality, but, actually what is happening is people who are at the margins financially uh, are being obliged to eat the poorest quality food and that is you know the one with the most additives the, the the chickens that are cheap that are pumped full of hormones and water where you know they've had a horrible life and that their bodies are adrenalized to cra to crazy degrees and we're all ingesting that um so it it, it, it it i just feel like we need to have a really big conversation about because food is our fuel you know what we put into our bodies impacts how we live our mental health our the, the quality of growth our attention span our temperament all these it's like food is yeah it's the well, thing it's the starting point of everything of it everything. is the base of everything we do in life yeah 
so I, I yeah I just think we there are really important conversations mm. people need to understand poverty and the grinding material daily terror of not having enough money to feed yourself or your loved ones and Absolutely. um yeah I just think there's a there's there's a huge conversation that we have to have as a nation about how do we want to be nourishing our most vulnerable people and, mm. and what is the ethos of that for the whole society and how do we now we're not in Europe as well how do we keep farming standards up when we want to have trade deals and the trade deals are going to be with countries where maybe they don't have the same level of food standards that we have got through being in Europe and that have been hammered out over decades and now we have to do the deal so does that mean we're going to get you know poorly treated animals traveling thousands of miles to be on cheaply on our tables are we going to have g you know gm crops you know or there's this this it's it's a hu- i know it's a it huge is conversation. Yeah, it's a huge conversation and um but one that absolutely needs to uh happen uh more than it already is so to speak something you touched on obviously your father was Ghanaian is Ghanaian yeah. I um I want I know a lot about Ghanaian food I love Ghanaian food but for anyone that might not know much about it talk to me about it and talk to me about some of the dishes that you know you were eating as a child if he was cooking Ghanaian food it's about quite often it's the sensibility of flavor of flavors so I was in Ghana with dad just before the pandemic we we got in under the wire beginning of 2020 um uh he he lives in our house in the Cotswolds uh, and then he goes okay. out to Ghana for like two or three months a year usually nice. the dreary months yeah. um, so in February you'll quite often find him in Ghana he's got the uh, perfect setup there. yeah yeah um and uh he he um cooked so he's nearly 90 um uh, and he he cooked a really simple meal of onions uh local tomatoes and yam it's all it was um and a little bit of um uh it probably had a little bit of maggie in it and a little bit of um pepper mm-hmm. uh, really simple quite quick to make but the smell of it and the taste of it, because he hadn't cooked me that dish since I was a kid. I, I sat down at the table with, you know, my grown, my grown ass children there as well. So, you know, and my brother, and I was suddenly transported from Ghana to this little village in the Cotswolds because oh, that's when I ate it as a child. And I, I, it made me cry because it was such a strong memory of being little and dad cooking this, and I can't, and I try, he, I try to reproduce it at home and I, I can't, it's close, but it's not quite yeah. dance. Yeah. And I think we, ha- we do have that, particular dishes that those we love to have cooked for us, that we can get close, but it's not, you don't quite. Mm. So anyway, so that's a really simple, a really simple dish. Um, uh, uh, plantain. So I'm, I, I'm a, I suppose I'm a pescatarian. I haven't eaten meat since I was 16. And um, uh, and so I'd go to Ghana and my aunts are all fabulous cooks. And my, my auntie Nana, hey, you don't want meat. And she would, so she would make me a savory plantain loaf. So it would, you know, it would, it would be, I suppose it'd be like a nut loaf or something, but with plantain. Okay. So just oh, wow. gorgeous onions and garlic and chili and peppers and, a bit, yeah, a bit of, um, I mean, Maggie is like the law in Ghana. Yeah. Um, and uh, so all smushed together and then baked into a sort of loaf shape and then she'd carve it. So um, I would have that. That and sounds not, incredible. It's just, it was so oh, delicious. Gosh. And we, when we were kids and we'd go, they'd be like, ha, ah, Bruni, uh, which means um, a white person, foreigner or English person. So my brother and I, ha, ah, Bruni, the, the white people had arrived. Uh, okay, so which meant that for my brother, they'd look at him, they'd be like, ah, we'll make him some chips, yam chips. So <laughs> just so that we'd feel at home, because chips, you have chips, you like it, isn't it? So the chips. So he'd, we'd have yam chips and you'd, eat and you'd be like, this isn't a chip. No. This is the yam. That's not a chip. <laughs> it's not a chip. Eat it, eat it. 
eat it. Yeah. So so there'd be that. There'd be fufu um, and gari. Um, you know, it's pounded cassava made in different ways. And um, not my favourite. Neither of them don't really like mm. them. Um, one of dad's cousins, he knew I didn't really like fufu. And uh, so he'd be, I, I remember we went to visit them in Tema, which is a harbour town up the coast. And he was like, ha, huh, okay, here's your fufu. And I ate it for a bit and he just watched me and then he went, you want some more? And I, and I was like, because I was like a polite child, um, yes, please. Okay. Oh, no. Like, Badoof. and then he'd sit there for hours sort of trying to get through it. <laughs> so that's not a favorite, that, that's not a favorite, but anything, scotch bonnet peppers, anything, um, uh, okra, all, all the vegetables, mm. um, just um, very, very happy. Uh, Kelewele, which is, um, uh, it's just a different form of plantain, which I love. Okay. Um, um, so my standard meal when I get to Ghana is jollof rice and a club beer because club, not star, club is the Ghanaian brewery. So you have to have the club beer and the jollof rice with shito on top. And shito paste is, um, uh, it's, uh, it's sort of uh, prawn, it's like prawn or crab crushed um, with, um, uh, in oil with um, lots of pepper and it all goes down and you just you don't need much but it just gives it that slight sort of you know like if you're eating spanish olives and they've been in anchovies that sort of extra kick so you put a bit of shit i am salivating it's so delicious so delicious i wonder if i can get that in london somewhere you can go you get it in brixton market there's a there's a shop in brixton market that they do they do um they do little tubs of shito that are like gold and um and uh, uh, you know they'll do you jollof as well. So just wow, lovely, lovely, lovely stuff. And fish, <gasps> tilapia fish. Fish is fish in Ghana is fantastic, mm. uh, especially uh, if you're living along the coast. So, so that wow. that would be sort of Ghanaian. Oh, and then of course you just go out to the garden and pick a mango off the tree, or an avocado off the tree. Why wouldn't you? Oh, I still can't get past that. And pawpaw. I always have pawpaw for breakfast mm. in Ghana. Well, gosh, well, you sold that to all of us. I think we're done. So something that I found quite interesting when I was doing a bit of my research about you is that you originally set out to become a lawyer, um, but yeah. then decided to pursue your acting career, which, you know, I would say was quite a risk. You know, the acting world is a very cutthroat industry. Um, how did your parents feel about that? How did, you know? Well, <sighs> let's be honest. I was being a lawyer because I'm a good African daughter. And that's also, why I'm asking the question. <laughs> I'm quite, I'm quite chippy, and I wanted to save the world from the bad people with my loyally um, silky skills. However, what I really loved was dressing up and pretending to be other people. But I grew up in the Cotswold. I mean, I, I, when I was six in the village hall, because we didn't have cinemas or anything. Like, I mean, this is two buses a week. I mean, Laurie Lee sided with Rosie. That's like a documentary, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so. Uh, they one year in the village hall which was like the village hall was like it was this metropolis center of all things entertaining you know there might be a panto in there there'd be um, a christmas party for the kids there'd be um jumble sales and um uh you know anything that was villagey would happen in the village hall so they set up a little screen i think it was somebody's dad's slideshow screen you know, it's probably, I don't know, five foot by five foot on a pole and you'd have mm. to unscroll it and put it up. And then they screamed and all the children sat on the floor and they screamed, Annie, get your gun. Oh, my mind was blown. My, it was like I was, it was, I was like in the poshest cinema ever. It's just all of us sitting cross-legged on the floor watching this amazing film. And I think I really knew I wanted to be an actor from then. But I didn't, we, how did you do that? I don't know how you do yeah. that stuff, you know. So um, uh, I was in all the school plays at primary school and secondary school. Um, I would go to, if there was a local amateur dramatic society production, I'd be there. Pantos, love, I still love pantos. It's my favorite art form, I think. And um, so I would be the kid who would, I would, I love Pippi Longstocking. I would put red tights on my hair. I'd get my mother's eyeliner and give myself freckles. 
I'd have the stripy socks and I would go around in clogs and have adventures. It's the batshit child. Oh and um, so I always loved doing all that stuff. I was always dressing up. I used to make books. I would stitch them and then I'd have quizzes and doctor dots and stories and fashion pages and dear, you know, dear problem pages and all of that. I was always making things and doing stuff and I would direct. Uh, I remember directing um, um, Gustav Holst's The Planet Suite. I choreographed it and got all the kids in it. We directed a play. Uh, we did um, Blythe Spirit. I'd never seen it. Somebody had vaguely told me about it. Charged people entrance money. There was a lot, of net, lot of net curtains and lights going on and off. Um, so I was always doing that stuff, but I didn't think that one could have a career in it. So we were allowed to do drama O-level. That's all them if we were doing A-levels, because it wasn't considered a proper subject. So we'd done all the school plays and I did drama O-level. And I went, um, I was very, and this is in the upper six, I was very depressed by this stage. Life was tricky. Um, I was doing the Oxford entrance exam. My parents were getting divorced. I was, I'd gone up a year early because I was a bright kid. So I, I think I was emotionally too young to be carrying A-levels, Oxbridge, extra O-levels, divorcing parents, anorexia the whole nine yards and I went to Bristol Old Vic and saw um, a play called Plenty by David Hare starring mm. Kate Nelligan and it was a play about a young woman who is sent overseas to do special ops during the second world war she's a secretary in London she goes over there she's brilliant brilliant she speaks French that's why they sent her over she helps the resistance she falls in love and then the war ends and she comes back to England and nobody wants a woman as smart and bright as she is. And she ends up going back to being a secretary. And it's a, it's a pretty depressing, sad end. But I just, I just remember my little ears going, Dunk! and, I, and I, I wept and I felt something and I was really with her. And maybe because I was feeling depressed, I sort of got that. But there was something that I understood that theater had the power to pull you into someone else's story and let that story resonate for you and make you think about who you are and how you direct your life. And there was something about the moment when she was in France and suddenly a light bulb had gone on and she went, I'm being my best self. I am brilliant at this. You know, I need to pursue what I'm good at, not what I'm told I should be doing. And there was something in that that I really sort of stuck in my back pocket. And then cut, you know, cut to, uh, messed up my A-levels, reset my A-levels in Bristol uh, at Filton Technical College. Um, uh, then worked for Lloyds Bank for a year because I was never going to do any more education. I hated education. Did a year at Lloyds Bank, hated Lloyds Bank, rubbish at numbers, till never balanced. People were like, Adj, Adj, is it you? I'd be like, yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> not favourite. So by that point, I was like, all right, I'll apply to do the law degree, anything, just get me out of here. So then I applied to do, latterly, I went and did a law degree at Bristol Polytechnic, which had a fantastic course. Two years into that, I joined Bristol Black Women's Group. I'd been to Greenham Common. Uh, we then circled the base. I was, I was getting into my feminism and my um, re realizing there's a whole world of literature by people from Africa and Southeast Asia and Black America. And uh, like my, it was like, duk, 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 my eyes were opened. Mm. And there was a woman in my black women's group who was an American actress and she was living in Bristol. And she's, and um, I was like, I'm, I'm leaving my law degree. I hate law, don't wanna do it anymore. Uh, I went and told my uh, head of department I was leaving. He said, I wish I'd done that at your age. I'm learning the violin. Do you want to come to a music class? And I went, okay. So I started learning the cello. And then Deborah from the black women's group said, I'm running some classes. You should come and take my class. So I took her class and um, she got funded by Ken Livingston and the GLC in 1984 to do a show. You need to come to London and audition for my show. So I came up to London. I was working in a legal aid center at the time um, and uh, auditioned and got the job, came up to London, stayed with a girlfriend, thought I was going to be in London for two months and then I'd go back and just never left. So my father wept when I packed in the law degree, as I would do if any of my children had packed in their degree. Mm. Just, just finish it. And that whole immigrant thing of we have to yeah. be twice as good, you know, doesn't matter where you've, you've immigrated from, 
it's that that mentality is we got to be you know you've got to get the qualifications education is key all the things i would say to my kids and i was like i can't i want to be an artist so you know i think there's a little bit of him that's still waiting for me to finish my law degree. I was just going to say, because obviously, I mean, the rest is history and here we are. I wonder how he feels now. He, uh, I know he's proud of me. He's told me once, quite recently, <laughs> wow. uh, uh, and didn't tell me, he didn't say I'm proud of you. He said, people say I should be proud of you. And I am. And that was it. And that was like, <sighs> so... Um, I don't know. I think maybe he's given up on his when having a child with a proper profession because my brother's a musician. So my parents just like epic fail on proper oh, job. They, had a, they got a double whammy there. <laughs> Dreadful. But, you know, my mum was a choreographer and a history teacher and she loved storytelling and all, and all of that. And my dad played in folk bands all the time, all through his life. Uh, so, you know, they couldn't do it. As, they couldn't pursue it as a full time creative career. Yeah. But, you met. You mentioned, you know, when you went to go see that theatre performance, it mm. sort of had your epiphany moment. Mm. And I've actually, because, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, you've sort of successfully bridged the gap between these three, you know, mediums of acting. Is, is theatre still your favourite medium? So I do lots of radio uh, yeah. as well. Um, and I... They all have their different demands. I So I love radio because all you've got is your voice. You can't do any of your funny walks or your raised eyebrows or any of the shticks. That, all, it's you and the listener's ear. And it's incredibly intimate. And it allows you to work in a different, a really intimate way, which I love. Um, it's very nuanced. And you really have to focus on how you um, transmit all of a story just through your voice so you have to your emotions have to be on point because so much comes through you vocally if you're authentically in that emotional place so uh it's um it's very tiring uh, and i find it creatively very rewarding that's radio theater you cannot dig yourself out by saying cut can we go again you get in a mess baby you just have to get mm -hmm. yourself out of it and also what happens on, in one performance, a, a wet Wednesday afternoon performance in the middle of winter is going to be a very different proposition from a sunny evening in August. Uh, uh, the audience vibration is different. Your vibration is different. Uh, even if the story is the same, it will resonate in a slightly different way. And I love the uniqueness of every theatre performance. And I, and I love to talk to the audience if that's you know, appropriate for the part. Um, and I and I just and I love getting their responses. Um, I was at the theatre last night. I was at the Lyric in Hammersmith, and uh, a new play, first time writer called Running with Lions. Terrific cast, um, a very diverse audience, and um, I, you know the audience was so with the story. At certain moments, certain moments, people are just laughing, not by anything someone said, but just an expression, or or because they recognise something in the story from their own life. It's, um, and then we're all weeping at the same time, you know, so there's something mm. very communal about a theater production, you know, audiences, they, this thing, they say the, 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 if you put a bunch of people in a room together, their hearts will start beating at the same pace. That's like, we're supposed to be in communion with each other. If you stick a bunch of women on tour, all our periods will happen at the same time. It's just like yeah. the human body wants to go yeah. with another human totally. body. So theater has got that magic about that you know, that we've all come here to go through this story together. I, I, I love that. The audience has made a commitment to come. You've made the commitment, there's crew, there's ushers, there's a whole endeavor to just tell a tiny story. I, th I think that's beautiful. And I suppose in a, in a larger way, film and TV does that as well. Um, but, you know, I remember I, I was in Casualty for three years and um, Derek, who plays Charlie in Casualty, um, he's been, in it since it started in the 80s. I mean, like, and but what I got from Derek was every day he came to work, he would try, because I mean, the stories are sort of limited. They're yeah. limited by the environment and yeah. um, people are generally poorly and somebody's upset about the poorly people. Um, and, and the staff are overworked, there's not enough money. That's kind of it. 
uh, sometimes you get better. Um, sometimes you die. Sometimes you don't. <laughs> so, so, so there's a sort of the frame is quite limited. Oh, yeah. Um, and but Derek would have this thing where every day you came to work and you had to tell the story like it had never been told before. So there's something about how do you refresh your approach mm. every day? How do you stay absolutely in the moment and not telephoning it in or by the numbers, even when it's in a frame that you know really well because you've been shooting the show for however long so i i thought there's a real discipline about that that i i loved and for me that's about honoring a writer has sat down at some point with a whole episode to do to follow through and there's been a whole team doing that somebody's designed it somebody's cast it people are learning lines you know replacing lenses whatever there's a whole endeavor that goes into that so and then there's the viewer who's bothering to tune in. So you have to honor everyone's endeavor. So that thing about trying to keep things fresh and on point and being in the moment and being authentic to the emotion and all of that stuff. It's a big discipline when you're on a show that's like every day you're in the makeup chair, it's 5 a.m. You know, so, um, so, so I love the discipline of that, of that regular gig. And then when you get to do a movie or something like that, you can just, uh, you're just a tiny jigsaw piece in an enormous cog. You know, there is going to be CGI, there's going to be music, there's going to be grading, or, you know, there's all sorts of things yeah. going on. And it's just um, being part of one narrative that you, you're never going to tell again uh, and absolutely owning your moment within that. And, uh, you know, doing, doing all the stuff. Know, knowing your lines, being paying attention, being generous with your with other actors, all the technical stuff. I love all the. I'm dyspraxic, so balance, props, all of that stuff, nightmare. Oh, so you have to give me my props in advance, or else I will just be like, <laughs> so, sorry, I dropped it. Can you do that again. Um, so um, yeah. So I love the technical discipline of going. I have to hit my mark. The camera's there. Da, 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 all of that, and you have to do that without any of it being seen because you're just somebody that walked into a room and said something. So I, I kind of love the challenge of that as well. That's, this is a long assed way to say, I don't have a favorite medium, but for me, it's all about the material. I hate doing poorly crafted work where you feel like I'm having to work really hard to just patch this over and make it look yeah. average. I like, that's why I love Shakespeare. You have to live up to the language. Um, you have to have your A game going so that you can be as good as the material. So I, I'll, I'll work in any medium if the material's good. Yeah, I think that was a very diplomatic, sort of well-executed answer. Thank you very much. <laughs> speaking speaking of um, film, TV, streaming, obviously before we get back to the food, I can't not talk about Bridgerton, um, where you play Lady Danbury. Yes. I mean, you know, this is this is also a completely could be a whole other conversation, but. It really took the world by storm. And yeah, it did. how shocked were you by the success of it? Because I know you guys filmed it quite... We finished filming. So so that story I told you about me... Quite far before everything yeah. happened in the world. You, you know the story I told you about my dad and yams in Ghana? Uh, yes. I literally left filming Bridgerton and went to Ghana. So oh, that's wow. when we okay. finished filming season one, uh, literally before everything shut down. So we had this weird thing of uh so that was february then it dropped on christmas day by which time we're in an entirely different universe from the one in which we'd filmed <laughs> the first season i mean like so you couldn't have made it up <laughs> you, uh, honestly nobody you would no no go rewrite no. that that would not no that's just too incredible so w when i signed up for bridgerton i knew um i knew three things that excited me shonda rhymes is a goddess I that mean, was going to be my next question. <laughs> on so many on so many levels, as a human being, as a creative artist, um, as a, a woman that, that's made through her own vision an empire of storytelling, she's a goddess, and I, I can't speak too highly. Uh, mm. uh, so, so to work with her, uh, I was thrilled beyond thrilled. When my kids were small, Grey's Anatomy was the law. It was Grey's Anatomy. It's, I mean, it still is in this household. And The Simpsons, <laughs> that was it. McDreamy was all over the TV. Oh, 
Yes. You know, or, or just, uh, I, I, we loved it. So I was sort of thrilled to be in the Shonda-verse, as it were. Um, then uh, Julia Quinn's books are enormously successful and enormously popular. So I knew that there would be an appetite from the Shonda folk and the Quinn folk mm. um, for the show. Um, and then for me, uh, my mum's a history teacher. I love history. Mum's a bit of a medieval maniac on the history front. Our house was just full of tapestry. And she's got a bit of Bayer tapestry. I mean, obviously reproduction. Oh, wow. But I mean, like, like a huge piece of that. She, you know, so I grew up with history and I love history. And um, uh, I love all the history, not just the Nazis and the Tudors, which is what seems to be taught today. So um, I, I was thrilled to be doing uh, a historical drama because mm. honestly, as, a, as an actor of colour, um, bonnets and gang shows would come along and you'd go, oh, great. OK, well, that's another show I won't be put up for. Mm. And um, even though people of colour have been, this is a trading island, you know, all the trades, good and bad. There have always been people from all over the world passing across these shores. So um, to have a show that isn't a documentary series, but is um, romantic, glamorous, glossy, um, on steroids with its locations and its frocks and its weirdy soundtracks that is it a pop song? No, it's a quintet. No, it is a pop song. All of that level of stuff going on to be able to go. And there were people of color on this island and uh, Queen Charlotte was did have African well, heritage. Well, this is what's so interesting. And, you know, I, I was probably a bit naive to it before I sort that, of it's read not more about it. Why would you know it's not but, but exactly, that era, you are actually, it's factual. Mm. It wasn't that Shonda or anyone sort of came in and wanted to create something. It was already, yeah. it already, that it was already there. Yeah, and London had, London, not even the country, London had 20,000 free black people living in London. Yeah. They were mainly around St. Giles. They were called, they were called the Blackbirds of St. Giles. That's where people, that was the area that people lived in. And um, uh, people who'd fought in the Civil War, uh, mm -hmm. who'd been slaves, uh, who had been given their freedom if they joined the British, mm -hmm. um, people who had bought themselves out of slavery, people who were traders from Africa, um, uh, you know, the Asia, China, the East the Indies, the Southeast Indies, I mean, like all over. So um, I, I love that, that the show, obviously it's not demographically precise. There are probably more people of color at a ball than you would have seen at a ball, but you would have seen some. And, yeah. and it's not a documentary. So it's just being sort of hyped up fabulous as well, but it's asking the questions. And so when people go, well, this is ridiculous. Is this just colorblind casting? I go, it's not colorblind casting because if it were, some of the Bridgerton children would be not white, for example, yeah. or, uh, uh, you know, somebody of color might have a, a, a child of color of a different race or a white child. It's, it, so it's not colorblind casting, but it's, it's, it's consciously thinking about um, folding in race uh, and uh, other things I love, you know, it has women in there who don't want to be a chattel and be married off, who might want to have a fabulous writing career or do something else with their lives. Yeah. There are, there are, uh, uh, you know, there are gay uh, stories slowly fluttering. to So it's just like, it's the world because the world has always been the world, but with now we have better plumbing and antibiotics. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> people have always been people. And yeah. um, so, I, yeah, so, uh, so from that point of view, I love doing the show. And I knew, so long ass, sorry, long ass answer. No, love but, it. But um, I, so I knew that there, there was something fabulous about it. Mm. And personally, Lady Danbury just sort of jumped off the page at me. And she reminds me of my mum, my fabulous mother, who is just, I mean, my mum was in, she was in Austria working with refugees after the war, helping to build homes and find, um, you know, find people somewhere to live. She married an African man against her family's wishes in the early 60s. My mum is a curious, open, uh, excited, excitable woman. And um, she's tall and she wears hats. So Lady Danbury's hat is absolutely all about my mum. And oh, I love that. she's just, she's just fabulous. My mum is, is fabulous. And, you know, she's still on the Civic Society and the WI and doing everything in her 80s and... Uh, um, 
she I rang her last night. She was like, I can't talk. I'm on soup and puds. Got to go. Uh, um, she's on soup and puds. So, um, I love her. So, you know, so I knew that Lady Danbury had a sort of dynamic energy to her that I was really excited about. And she, mm. you know, she reminds me of my mum and my dad's sisters, the fabulous aunties in Ghana. And um, all those stalwart women, actually, who just take what life gives them and try and make something delightful from it. Mm. Well, I think you executed it perfectly. And I'm a huge fan, may I say. Oh, thank you. Some I speak to a lot of musicians and I'm always fascinated by what they have to eat when they're on tour or what they can kind of just grab by the wayside. Talk to me about what food is like on set. Food on tour. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> uh, so I have been touring since 1984. Uh, so life for a vegetarian slash pescatarian has changed considerably. I bet it I mean, has. it used to be uh, baked potatoes and beans or a fried egg. Do you want a fried egg? Chips, chips and beans and a fried egg, you know, that would, it was really, uh, we got some fried onions, some mushrooms. Um, it was, it was dire. It was pretty <laughs> limited. So it, in my head still to this day, I always have food with me just in case I'm somewhere and I'm like, mm. so uh, um, I will always have almonds with me. I will always have a cafetiere and coffee because I can can't be doing instant coffee or we haven't got the coffee on yet or yeah no 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 no, no. none of that none no. of that especially no. if it's been a half past four pickup and like so um and i, I will leave i've even got a travel kettle my mother-in-law got me it. a travel kettle so i'm i'm all good to go yeah. on my on my uh on my caffeine fix um i always take my yogurt with me because i never know um yeah food on uh, so and i quite often take my own lunch as well i'll often take you know um a salad um a lump of cheese an avocado i don't you know what what's ever in the fridge and handy that's not going to spill uh but if but if you're filming sort of not near to home yeah what are you what are you then doing i'm finding the shop where i can buy all Fine. that stuff okay i'm just like so if i'm on tour uh, I have to have a fridge in my hotel room. I was about to say, yeah. Because I have to be able to put the stuff somewhere. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, funny things. I remember I was at the RSC when uh, um, Pizza Express emerged. <laughs> and uh, they would stay open till 11 o'clock. So Pizza Express around the land became the actor's friend because you could skid in and get a late supper at Pizza Express. We were like... Red wine and beer and pizza. I just end the show. Um, so yeah, it's like they, these things that come along, and you're like, oh, um, or the town where you know they've got a cafe Nero, so you yeah. can get you can get a decent espresso. Yeah. Um, just just ridiculous things. So all that stuff, and across the world, um, you know, I'm like, where's that deli in Moscow that you said was good for blah? Or yeah, all that sort of stuff. So um, so I that's great. And some some shoots you do, the catering is out of this world. So when I work with Clint Eastwood, the catering, oh, oh, it was. <laughs> oh, and they didn't do rolling days. So a rolling day means that you yeah. don't stop for lunch. So you're sort of eating, eating on the go your tinfoil and... thing as yeah. you, yeah. So um, uh, that the catering was stunning. It was in a marquee. It was South Africa, so everything was fresh. The fish was amazing. The fruit, the vegetables, the salad. It was just so. Um, and then other times, it's it's ah. Did, I've, I think I recognise these beans from two days ago. Ah, we're having no. them in a different way today. It kind of surprises me a little bit. You think, you know, with some of the... Am I being really naive? But I think, you know, with some of the budgets, do you not think that they would up the ante a bit with the food and the catering? Well, you would think so. And for me, I always think, uh, you know, people are doing unbelievably long days. Well, that's what having I'm to stay super concentrated for a long time and stopping for your lunch lunch is becomes a highlight of the day yeah. i'm not saying that we're down a salt mine or anything because we're, we're we're absolutely not we're faffing about in frocks mm. but um uh, you know and it's just an easy psychological um human wrangling win to me is to give people delicious food 
but you're having to do it on industrial scales and you might be in a windswept boggy field in the middle of who knows where so it's really hard for caterers to keep it moving all the time and keep it fabulous but I think uh, for me that's always a big psychological win and and doing things I remember uh, when I was at casualty loads of us just sort of going I just I don't want cake and I know the crew want cake and sandwiches in the tea break because they want some good carbohydrates to keep them going it's, but I don't want that because it makes yeah. me sluggish mm. I want nuts and fruit and vegetables and you know give us a bit of hummus and some carrot sticks or something for a snack because then you're not digesting these heavy carbs and feeling like okay well of my line but that sort of you know so it's it's a quite a juggle that you have to have to satisfy everybody's but everybody's. it's also what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation about you know food and and our stomachs being the basis the of fuel. everything yeah exactly. you know and if you're you know you when when you guys are filming you're doing crazy hours so yeah. if anything if i was head of all of these productions um food would be number one for me up on the uh yeah. sort of scale of yeah. what we are what we're prioritizing it's the it's like the psycho soothing element <laughs> that you can yeah. make be great yeah. or make be oh god this food honestly you know which is sort of the opposite of being look you know having a highlight in your day mm. so yeah and then on the flip side when mm. you are home and you're mm. sort of not filming or you're not sort of around the world what are your specialities at home well i have to confess straight up because my kids would laugh if they knew i was doing a food podcast they'd be like because i will just eat cheese out the packet and you know a, i don't a, judge that and a bag of rocket and eat that out the packet as well <laughs> it's like i can't be asked the thing is i had three children uh, there's a 10-year gap between the first and the second and then two in blindingly quick succession nobody would plan those things and so i just felt like for decades i was doing okay eat your broccoli okay, no you, you yes you can when you've had your i just felt like i was doing that for, yeah. for, for decades and i lost the will to live somewhere in and also you know i was working full time and my husband was busy and we we're you know it's like oh i burnt the fish fingers never mind put some ketchup on they'll never know you know the kids would say it was a lot of burnt um right um you know veggie nuggets and mm. i bought them all at vegetarian and then of course as soon as my son could get to a mcdonald's he yeah. was gone um uh but if i'm cooking for a dinner party or i have time um and it's not and it's not you know get some fuel in them get them out the door um then i i do enjoy it and i remember actually when i just had one and i was young and full of energy i used to throw lavish birthday parties uh for jesse and i'd make all the foods that were like birthday foods so i do homemade guacamole with oh, you know nice. lemon and chili and uh i would do strawberry mousse that my mum made for my birthday parties which is strawberry jelly and then tin strawberries and cream and you whip it you froth it all up and oh, yeah. uh and then so you the jelly slightly harder than you would normally do so that when you've added the cream in it comes to a niceness whack it in the fridge that would do that i love a sherry trifle it's mainly cream and sherry let's be honest um and i try to put some nice fruit in but i don't care We're i'm not I'm, there for that the, the custard <laughs> is full of cream the cream yeah. is full of sherry the sponge fingers right. are full of sherry yeah and there's some fruit and that if i you know if i was going to guillotine that would be my last meal yeah. cherry trifle all the way really um yeah love that um uh, but then i love mummy salad dressing always gets gets a thumbs up from my quite picky i mean my eldest child is going to be 36 this year so they're not babies um uh and my salad dressing is olive oil side organic cider vinegar tamari um chili flakes maybe a tiny bit of honey um lots of chopped garlic and whole grain mustard oh and my just gosh. give it a good shake and okay. you can you can make any sort of salad you want and whack a bit of that on and it's i'm gonna so, make that yeah so I, do, I so i love salads with um raw broccoli and spinach and raw bean uh, you know green beans and avocado and tomatoes spring onions scissored and um, scissors scissors <laughs> um so all, all all that sort of I, but any old vegetable chuck any vegetable in and put a salad dressing on it it's it's it, it's Gosh. great or uh, raw raw um sprouts 
chopped yeah. up, all of that. Just oh, I love like like Brussels sprouts. Yeah. I love Brussels sprouts. I love, I love Brussels raw sprouts. Brussels sprouts. <laughs> I love them raw. I love them steamed. I don't like yeah. them overcooked. Who, no. Who, who does? God forbid. But they are delicious. I could eat sprouts all year round. Yeah, same. Um, fried with a bit of butter and garam oh. masala. Oh. Oh. Mm. Gosh, we're getting all the tips today. Mm. I'm liking this. I need to write all this down. Yeah. So, so I love all that. But I like making a good chip as well. Super crispy on the outside, fluffy in the middle. What's your secret to a good chip? Chop the chips up and then I steam them a little bit. Ah. And then and I give them. What oil bit, are you using? To then cook I give them a bit in. of a shake. I, I, I'm using olive oil. Okay. Not, not, not extra virgin. Just, just like normal, yeah. like cooking olive oil. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So would you say you have a pretty healthy relationship with food in general? Uh, no, I was anorexic in my teens. Um, and, uh, but I, I understand, I, I understand. And I see it all the time with um, not just young girls, actually young boys as well. It's not, it's not, it's not about being thin. It's about having some control over your life. When you feel your life is out of control, I've seen it a lot with um, people who have parents who have got quite high status jobs or where they have to be good children and behave well and all that sort of thing. And you can't control much of that, but you can control what goes into your mouth. And then it, it's a way of giving you power in a way even if it's the power with your freaked out parents going just eat something you're like so I, I think there's there's something around food that's about being feeling uh, about withholding food from yourself that's about feeling vulnerable and I suppose excessive eating does the same thing mm. there's sorts of different ways of trying to shield um, so I won't I wouldn't say that I've always had a good relationship with food but I think I what I understand for me now is that um, I, I only eat the food I like now. It's one of the great things about being a grown-up. I've always gone, I can have trifle for my breakfast and for my main course, uh, you know. But then no one's going to tell me otherwise. No one's going to tell me otherwise because I mm. bought the trifle, I made the trifle for my trifle. Um, mm. but, but, I, but I think it's that thing of going, what am I putting into my body that's going to help me? Because... I'm a human being from my neck down as well and the whole thing needs to function so what helps and what doesn't help and then work out what it is for your metabolism and try and um, think about that I, you know I'm, I'm also because I'm dyspraxic I have to think about my joints so um, mm. fishy oils is good um, fishy fishy foods food that doesn't inflame everything so not processed food fresh vegetables try and cook it from scratch, all that sort of, all the sort of obvious stuff, really. When you're not cooking, where are some of your favourite restaurants? Oh, I will eat anywhere. I like a good greasy spoon. Okay. Really like a proper good greasy spoon. Usually, you know, where they have the frothy coffee machine, because it's been there since God was a boy. And um, <laughs> they do a really good cheese omelette uh, and a great, and salad. Uh, there's a, a, a great little place in Eastbourne now, I can't remember the name. Anyway, I like a good greasy spoon. Uh, I love um, Middle Eastern uh, food. There's a great little range of restaurants called Ev and Taz, which are in central London. Uh, so it's the same company. There's one called Ev and then there's a whole load called Taz. And it's sort I of feel made... like I've been to Taz or one yeah, of them. I'm sure you will have. There's sort of, it's yeah. sort of Turkishy Mediterranean. Yeah. But what's so great is you can take everybody there with any dietary requirement. And everyone's sorted. And everybody is sorted. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I like places that have a space for everybody mm. to eat as, uh, as well. Um, and there's where, I mean, because I'm in South London, we are blessed with fantastic, a whole range of African foods. Uh, Portuguese foods, Spanish, Italian, Indian, Pakistani. There's like a, there's I mean, such no, a range. the food diversity in South London, in Brixton especially. I it uh, it's fantastic, isn't it? It's incredible. Uh, yeah, I feel very well catered for here. Mm. And then mm. we've got all the brilliant places like Brixton Whole Food Shop, which nearly went under but hasn't. I finished with a few quick fire questions. So, okay. This podcast is sponsored by Gorillas. So if you were stuck at home and you mm -hmm. had to make, whip up a meal, what are the three ingredients you are going to order? Um, uh, it's going to have to be broccoli, 
garlic and have I got chili in or not? I'll, I'll let you have chili already. I'm okay. Bothered. So it's going to be broccoli, red onions and, and, uh, and garlic. Okay. That's ve- ve- three very versatile ingredients, may I say. What is the craziest food you've ever eaten? Do you know, I don't do crazy food because I'm really scared of it. You know, when you, people do bush tucker trials. Uh... <laughs> nope. <laughs> a, a, food, a food that I don't understand is anything with salted caramel. Okay. I, I think it's the devil. I know. <laughs> I don't want salt in my pudding. I don't want it. Do you it. not think it cuts no. through though? No, it just, all I can taste is salt. So get off my pudding. Oh, no, I don't mind sweet and savory. You can give me, you know, grilled goat's cheese on mango all day long. It's delish. I have no problem with that. Salted caramel. Ca- so that would be a crazy, that would be that a crazy thing. brilliant. That's one of the best answers I've ever had. Okay. What's been your most memorable meal? Gosh, this is so weird. Uh, it's a meal in New York. Uh, and it's not even about the food it's about being in this tiny it's on my honeymoon uh and it's about being in this tiny little restaurant called home which was uh i think it was in soho i mean it was tiny it probably seated 10 people and it was had green pale see don't remember the food but i remember the decor had pale green uh um sort of wooden slatted walls and it sort of looked like it should have come out of a shaker tradition or something. And the food was, it was really simple vegetable. Everything was really simple. Everything about it was plain and simple and delicious. The flavours were so, you know, the, the carrots were so carroty uh, and the peas were so peeish. Pea. I don't, <laughs> peeish. Peey. Um, <laughs> everything was just, the flavours were sharp and vivid and yeah it felt exploded like exploded in your mouth yeah every, every, everything about it was super fresh so um that i would that's not even a food that's not even a food no, it's the no, whole but, feeling well, it's of also in the about place. the experience i think yeah. that that's what i always sort of explain to people it is it, it may not be about the food it could be where you were or who you were with and that's a beautiful answer because you're on your honeymoon with your husband so my favorite snack of all time is a packet of crisps what is your favorite flavor of crisps and why I like cracked black pepper. Okay. Kind of like a kettle chip, salt and cracked black pepper. Yes. Okay. I like it because I, I, I love, I love crisps. I mean, I like a plain golden wonder, but. Gosh, golden wonders. Golden wonder crisps. Jeez, that's a blast from the past. I am old. But I I like. I remember them. I like the pepperiness of, uh, I like the pepperiness of having the cracked black pepper and crisp. I'm, I'm all about, I will put, you know, I'll put chili or pepper on anything, ice cream, Me too. Uh, yeah. fruit, yeah. anything. Yeah. Um, so uh, to have that on a crisp and I, I like it cause it's not, it's not flavored. I don't like extra flavor. I like the plainness of the crisp. Well, well cooked with a, with the black pepperiness. Okay. What food sums up happiness for you? Cherry trifle. <laughs> it's alcohol, cream and fruit. I mean, yeah. What, what more do you need in life? Quite frankly, I, I, I just I really, I really love I don't know why I, 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 I did the I did the um, the uh, British Great British menu banquet. Uh, I was on it for the banquet, luckily, and they had they did a, a cherry trifle and it had it had miso in the chocolate spongy bit. I was like, miso? It was delicious. Oh, okay. It was, I was so surprised because it's nearly veering into the salted caramel territory for me, frankly. Mm. But um, I don't know what it was. Maybe it, was, it wasn't too much, but there was something really interesting. So I think maybe I have to try and expand my sherry trifle game slightly. Maybe. Mm. Final question. Mm. Live to eat or eat to live? I don't know what that means. Uh, so hang on. So eat to live. That means food is fuel. It's also how it's how you want to take it. It's completely up to you. Ah, okay. Yeah. It's a bit no, of a philosophical one. It is. I think I'm. I think I'm eat to live where it means food is fuel. I'm not a massive obsessive foodie. 
food mm. is fuel but i am very fussy about what that fuel is beautifully beautifully said adua it has been an absolute pleasure you are actually very inspirational and um i wish you all the best with oh, all of thanks, your endeavors in the next you know coming year and uh if you want to follow Adua on social media, which you should, she is found at adua.ando. Until next time. Bye, guys. Thank you for tuning in. If you love what you hear, please subscribe and review. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Crazy Sexy Food and check out the Crazy Sexy Food YouTube channel. Until next time. Bye.